Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of brain enhancement? So today we're joined by Jesse Lawler, who is the host of a podcast called Smart Drug Smarts. Uh, it's a podcast I'm a big fan of. It's all about ways to optimize and enhance your brain. So thanks for, for joining us, Jesse. Thanks for having me here. So maybe before we begin, I just wanted to state some of the reasons we might care about this issue of brain enhancement and making ourselves smarter. One of them is fairly obvious, which is that intelligence is, you know, it might be the most powerful force for good or for solving our problems that we have as humans. So uh, with all the dangers that might be looming on the horizon, this would be our best way around those. Uh, mm -hmm. But also, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is the coming wave of automation and progress in artificial intelligence and the ways in which it might be harder and harder for humans to actually keep up with the machines, whether it's in the job market or just in sort of keeping track of, you know, how societal control. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we could make humans smarter, that might, you know, allow us to compete better in a future full of AI. But uh, just to get more specific, I figured we'd start in the present with techniques and treatments and things that are on the market today. Yeah. So Jesse, on his podcast, you interview a whole lot of people who are like domain experts and really are very aware of like all the different drugs and, and things out there that you can do to, to try to enhance your brain, right? Yeah, that's sort of what I've been trying to do. My, my modus operandi on the podcast or modus operandus is to think about the things that I'm interested in learning more about, try to find somebody that has already done the intellectual deep dive and get them on the phone to ask as many sort of deep probing questions as I can to kind of figure out what things I want to experiment in myself, what things are interesting, but sort of off the table for me for health reasons or whatever, and, and just sort of think about what's coming next down the pike, since I feel like a lot of this stuff, as far as brain enhancement goes, is, is really just on the cusp of getting started in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Well, why don't we start there with like what's out now, right? What do you think are the drugs or supplements or other treatments on the table right now that are the most exciting or interesting to you? Well, I guess... You know, there's the handful of drugs that people are aware of as ADHD medications that we see um, a lot of newspaper articles and concern about college students using, you know, fill in the blank to study for tests and these things that are considered, um, you know, medications that ne shouldn't necessarily be used to improve a person's ability to focus on something like just academic performance, but is being done anyway. Uh, you know, the big two of those are, are Adderall and Ritalin, which a lot of people will have heard of. There's another drug, um, actually a couple of drugs called the Afinils. People have heard of something called Modafinil. It's also got a sibling chemical called Armadafinil. And then another chemical, which actually breaks down into Modafinil called Adrafinil. And, and sort of that family is another um, a pretty well-known set of cognitive enhancers. And then there's sort of the more um, prosaic ones like, you know, caffeine that's been around forever and that everybody's heard of. And, um, you know, the, the term for smart drugs, sort of the more scientific sounding term is called nootropic. It's N-O-O, -O, but it's like the Greek in nuo or something. I'm, I'm still not sure that I pronounce it right, despite the fact that I have a podcast about this stuff. And the original nootropic is something called paracetam. And there's also a family of chemicals called racetams, which are um, yeah, probably one of the most 
fundamental things people think about when they think about cognitive enhancers. Okay, uh, let's let's uh, let's start with those racetams that you just mentioned. Tell me about what those do. How do those actually improve your cognitive functioning? Okay, well, it's, it's a great question, first of all, because most of the tests that have been done on the racetams, and in fact, it, on men, many of these brain enhancing chemicals, have been to improve people's brains who are you know late in life and starting to suffer from the early stages of dementia or or things like that, brains that aren't functioning perfectly. And I'd say to characterize a whole slew of studies over the past 40 years, the racetams have done very well with sort of propping up fading brains. They haven't done as many studies and the results haven't been as conclusive on uh, you know, benefits to people that are still in the prime of their life, that their brain is still operating as they wish it to. There have been, um, you know, studies on college students showing, you know, temporary increases or, or, or even uh, for ongoing use, um, you know, long-term increases on like verbal dexterity and some forms of verbal memory and things like that. But then there have been other studies that have shown, you know, no significant difference. So it's kind of one of these things where, you know, as with many scientific studies, you need to look at, I think, a, a spectrum of many different studies because you know, not all of them necessarily agree with one another. But I think the general trend with racetams is that they tend to be neuroprotective. They, um, if you have racetams as something that you're regularly supplementing with, should something go wrong within one of your neurons or, or within your brain, it, it has an easier time recovering from that potential damage or avoiding that potential damage in the first place. So the neuroprotective effects, I think, make them attractive. Um, the actual mechanisms of action as to, like, there's 15 or so different racetams kind of in the family that you mentioned. There's paracetam, which is the great-grandpappy. There's, you know, aniracetam, oxyracetam, paramaracetam, and so on and so forth, more than I can remember off the top of my head. But despite the fact that they've all got the similar name suffix, there's not a consistent mechanism of action within that family. And, and some of them, despite the fact that they can have you know, fairly dramatic, uh, at least subjective effects, the, the mechanisms of action aren't really agreed upon even by scientists. And that's something which is sort of a theme actually within you know, the smart drugs world, the, the afinils, the armadafinil, adrafinil, and modafinil is a similar thing where despite the fact it clearly seems to have like awareness enhancing effects, scientists don't agree on exactly what's going on to cause those effects. So um, I guess to get back to Parastam for a moment, I'd read about Parastam before I'd taken it. I was I was super excited about you know what what sounded sort of like a you know cognitive miracle drug in a lot of ways, and so I, I took it with the highest of expectations. And if anything, I feel like I would have been completely primed for a, a positive placebo effect. And it's one of these chemicals that you don't necessarily take it and feel it on the first time. It's you're supposed to actually sort of build up a, a baseline within your system. You take a, a fairly large amount actually to sort of load your body for a few weeks. Something mm. like um, I think it's 1.6 to 2.4 grams per day. That's, that's not milligrams. That's a gram. So you know, wow. a couple of big pills per day. And so I, I did that for a few weeks. And honestly, on paracetam, I could not tell a difference. I just I could not. It was kind of a, a letdown for me. And, um, but there are other people who say exactly the opposite, who say that, you know, they, they take Prastam and within a few days they're seeing sharper colors and feel like they have better ability to, you know, pull 50 cent words out of thin air when they're talking in conversation. So I feel like a lot of these things probably have very different effects for different people. And that could be a combination of possibly a person's particular, you know, genealogy or epigenetics and also things like, you know, what sort of, uh, you know, dietary stuff is going on with them. Are they possibly, you know, missing a, a certain, you know, prerequisite to a neurotransmitter and they just don't have enough right. of things. And so 
um, something like Parastam might be bringing them up to their baseline. It, it's really tough to answer that question in a general way. But then I tried another Racetam, which has sort of come to be my Racetam of choice called Aniracetam. And, and that one I, I felt on the first try and is something that's sort of continually in my medicine cabinet that I'll come back to and maybe take you know once a week or so. Huh. So what exactly did you feel on that one? Aniracetam for me is like the drug that you want to be on when you're doing a whiteboard session, when you're trying to be creative and come up with a lot of ideas in a short period of time. I've, I've referred to it in the past as like, I, I don't DJ, but if I were a DJ, it would be a perfect DJ drug because it's kind of like you focus intensely on one thing for like three to five minutes and then you're kind of ready to jump to something else. And um, yeah, that, that's kind of subjectively for me what aniracetam puts me in the state of being. It's not like a deep sustained focus with the blinders on drug. When I feel like I want a deep sustained focus with the blinders on, then I would go to one of the, the afinils, modafinil or armodafinil. But for, uh, for yeah, kind of creativity sessions when I, I feel like I just want to spread a bunch of ideas out and, and shuck them around, see what fits with what else well, aniracetam I think can be really optimal for that. So I, I feel like this might end up being a common theme, but it sounds like there's essentially a pretty fundamental trade-off with that one, right? I mean, you might be, say, boosting this sort of broad creativity that you're talking about, but it sounds like the sustained focus is less good. Has that been your experience with most of these, that like there's nothing that you would want to be on for all occasions? Yeah, that, that's a super question. Um, like, is there a pill for all-purpose smarter? It, you know, it gets sort of down to the definition. You know, we talk about smart and everybody's like, oh, you know, this, that guy's smart. And you, you, we, we sort of feel like we have this assumption about what that actually means. But there are so many different ways you could kind of break down a person's intelligence that don't necessarily uh, correspond to one another. Because you're right, something like uh, the ability to come up with a whole lot of ideas in a short time is sort of a different skill set in a way than deep focus on one particular idea. And they are a little bit of a, a, a seesaw between those two. If one goes up, the other goes down. And I think, um, like, like I've never done MDMA ecstasy, but that's reported to be, of course, this drug that makes you incredibly in tune with your emotions and, and positive emotions and able to, you know, emotionally connect with people that you're around better than you can in your regular life. But of course, I'm sure that it's, it's got other cognitive downsides, which might make it a horrible choice if you wanted to be, you know, sitting and doing your SATs or something. So I, I kind of feel like the brain that evolution has given us if properly stocked with food and water and exercise and all sort of the, the, the biological baseline stuff that we want is probably about as good as we're going to be for a while with like the all-purpose solution. But some of these you know, drugs that modulate different neurotransmitters are probably good for pushing us in one direction or another. It's, if, if I want to be a little bit more focused, I can do this thing. If I want to be a little bit more emotional, I can do that thing. And yeah, understanding that there will be trade-offs there. But on the other hand, I guess that's kind of the same with all of our technologies. It's like if you're driving a car, you have to choose between do I want to go right or I want to go left. I, as the driver, make that decision. And, and me as a brain owner, I can kind of choose like, well, would I rather be a little more optimal for this style of thinking or that style of thinking right now? And I think having, having that steering wheel metaphorically is, is a kind of cool thing. Now, I know there are... Uh I think the term for them is stacks or sort of combinations of supplements and pills that are available to be bought on the market that are supposed to improve your brain. Can I infer from the way you're describing that you don't take any of those types of stacks that you would take on a regular basis? that you more like choose for the occasion what you take? Or is there anything that you actually take regularly? There are things that I take regularly. There's nothing that I take daily except for some 
run-of-the-mill supplements like vitamin D3, just because everybody probably needs some vitamin D3, everybody probably needs some fish oil in their diet, things like that. For the sort of more exotic drugs in my medicine cabinet, I try to sort of not do the same thing day after day after day because your body builds up a tolerance to everything. I like my drugs to work when I take them and I don't want to slowly need to amp up the dosage or things like that. So I'll probably take like one of the aphanils two days a week. I'll probably take aniracetam a day a week. There's something which is actually an extract of green tea. It's it's what makes green tea more than just caffeine called uh, L-thiamine. I, I take a, um, a smart caffeine pill, which is basically just a, a caffeine plus L-thiamine. They, they go together. That's something I'll probably take at least once a week and, and just sort of go on a, a, a daisy chain among these things and then try something new every once in a while rather than let myself build up a tolerance to anything that I, I think is you know working the first time. Let's rewind a second to where you actually started, uh, which was with those really commonly known ADHD drugs of uh, the ones that, you know, seem to be taken by droves of college students. Yeah. I noticed you didn't mention any of those. I take it that they're not part of your regular usage. Yeah. I, I don't know whether I should be embarrassed of this or not as somebody that hosts a podcast about smart drugs, but I have not personally taken either uh, Adderall or Ritalin. I know a ton of people that have, and I, I kind of feel like I've inferred a lot about what they might be like uh, having talked with people. But on the other hand, I I, I kind of almost feel morally obligated to try to get my hands on some at some point just to kind of, you know, take the ride and see what it feels like so I can talk about my own subjective experiences on either or both of them. I, I have, you know, close friends, very intelligent people that do take, um, you know, either or Adderall or Ritalin on a uh, you know, fairly regular basis and in, in some cases swear by them. But I also know that there are are, are definitely dangers. We're, we're about to have an episode of Smart Drug Smarts on Ritalin. We haven't done a Ritalin episode yet, but um, I believe it's the, the week of the 25th of March that I've got that interview scheduled. So in the not terribly distant future, I'll know more about Ritalin than I do right now. We did have an Adderall episode maybe six or nine months ago. And I, I remember one of my main takeaways from that was, you know, the doctor who I interviewed described Adderall and, and the actual effects that it has within a person's brain being fairly fundamentally and profoundly different between somebody that legitimately is on the ADHD spectrum versus somebody who's not on that spectrum, somebody with a more um, middle-of-the-bell-shaped curve-type brain taking the same drug. So taking some of these things without a doctor's prescription, it really is sort of a let-the-buyer-beware situation and, and also a um, situation where the people that are taking this off-label and, and just getting it from wherever, sometimes they're, they're not minding the dosages at all. I've heard some pretty shocking things about some of the dosages that people are taking in a sort of a self-prescribed manner. And I'm enough of a health nut where that kind of thing kind of scares me. I think there's, in, in all forms of physical health, we need to be aware that there's a trade-off between performance and health. Those aren't necessarily the same thing. You know, one of the examples I love is that the guy that ran the original marathon, he died when he got to marathon from overexertion. So um, being able to operate at a really high level for a short period of time is not necessarily the same thing as, as being you know, healthy over the long term, which I think is ultimately more important for most people. Well, I will, uh, I will cop to having taken Adderall. It's actually probably one of the only things we've brought up that I have, in fact, uh, had any experience with. And the subjective experience that I've had has been pretty much just, it feels like most stimulants feel. And I, I find that it's way, way better in small doses and it can be very, very bad in larger ones, uh, at, least, <laughs> at, at least for me. Uh, and so I think you're right to be cautious about it. Uh, 
it's the kind of thing where, you know, in sort of the classic image you might have of someone uh, taking, say, a harder drug like speed, where if you are not careful with it and you were to take too much and uh, not plan out what you were going to do, you could end up, you know, organizing your closet for six hours instead of instead of being actually productive. So, Right, right. That's, that's one of the things I've felt about modafinil, certainly, is that it kind of makes whatever you're doing a little bit more interesting than it would otherwise be, which is, <laughs> is exactly, I guess, what we think about when we think of focus. Focus is just like it's easy to put your attention and maintain your attention on something. But it's kind of like you want to make the decision about the course that you're setting for your next several hours before you take the drug, because otherwise, if you're not conscientious about it, you could get into the situation where you take the drug, something which doesn't really merit your attention, it feels more interesting, and, and you vector off in some uh, you know totally useless direction. Yeah, no, there's the, definitely a huge danger of that. And I find that it doesn't necessarily feel like it makes you any smarter, but like you said, it, I think it seems to help with motivation. It seems to uh, make things more interesting, as you said. Like You can kind of get over that initial hump of maybe the willpower that it takes to, say, get started on a project. I find it helps for that. But it sounds like there's no you know, wonder drug on the market here. Like There's maybe some things that you can avail yourself of with caution, obviously, in certain context-sensitive situations. But uh, b- before we kind of got into the, the catalog of things that are out now... I, I feel like you've you kind of quickly alluded to that this being an exciting time for this type of stuff, that there might be some things on the horizon. What do you see like coming out? Like, like where do you yeah, see what's this the going? Big, next big revolution in, in nootropics? Well, I mean, there's a ton of study going on in this right now. I think the, the general consumer market is starting to have heard of things like, you know, the word nootropics. It, it's, you're seeing more and more articles and, you know, podcast interviews and things like that about the subject matter. And I just kind of feel like as it comes to be a more recognized thing within society, there's going to be, you know, pharmaceutical companies are seeing dollar signs. Obviously, the long-term benefits to humanity as a whole of having smarter humans, I, I think, is, is so self-evident that there's reason for people to be chasing this. Um, I just did an interview a couple of episodes ago with um, a group called IARPA. So IARPA, that's the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, I believe is what the acronym is for. But they've got, for the next two years, I think they're about one year into a three-year study, where they've got different teams of scientists that are experimenting with a variety of um, you know, combination interventions to make already really high-performing individuals smarter. So it's not about taking your 70-year-old grandmother who's starting to get Alzheimer's and, and propping up her brain as her brain is already on the way down. It's about finding somebody that works in the intelligence apparatus of the U.S. government who's already got 150 IQ and seeing if you can mock him up to a 180 or 190 IQ. And so you know, as, as further research and dollars and interest goes into these things, I, I can't help but think that there's going to be some, some pretty positive results over the course of the next you know, decade or so. Well, maybe at this point we should talk about the fact that, like, why wouldn't there have been always interest in these things? And I think there is definitely a cultural stigma around enhancing already healthy individuals. I mean, obviously, it feels more urgent to correct people that are at some kind of cognitive deficit. But do you think, like, the actual cultural attitude about maybe enhancement being somehow wrong or even immoral? Do you think that's shifting? You know, it's, it's tough to say. First of all, there's that whole disparity about the way that humans don't think rationally where we fear losing something more than we appreciate gaining something. And so I think people are, are much more willing to spend time and money and research dollars to try to 
keep somebody from having their IQ drop than, than gain the same number of IQ points on, on, the, uh, on the plus side. And that's just a, something that is well known about the way people think and is always going to be there. As far as sort of the ethics of cognitive enhancement, I mean, it's weird. It's like you don't necessarily feel like somebody shouldn't go to the gym and try to make themselves stronger or you know have a better time running a mile or something like that. So it, it seems weird to me that and, and you also don't feel like if, if somebody gets a bunch of books and tries to learn a bunch of new languages and tries to make themselves, you know, quote unquote, smarter the old fashioned way, people don't feel threatened by that. But the idea that somebody can sort of cheat the system by taking a pill or right. putting on a transcranial direct current stimulation helmet or, or something like that. Uh, yeah, there are some people that feel like that's kind of an unfair advantage. I, I'm not one of those people, clearly, but um as far as how society at large feels, I don't know. That's something we can speculate on as to whether it's getting more acceptable or not. I mean, I feel like the number of ways in which people cheat their biology, whether it's things like you know cosmetic enhancement or even putting on makeup, is, is so large and is, is kind of becoming more and more normal that I think doing the same thing cognitively will probably also be more accepted as time goes on. Well, you mentioned something there uh, that sounded very technical uh, that I did want to bring up as well, which is uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. And of course, uh, in terms of ways to enhance your brain, not all of them are actually pills or supplements that you would swallow. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you want to maybe for our audience describe what what that is, transcranial direct current stimulation? Yeah. So so this is one of these things that kind of sounds like it wouldn't work, but apparently it does. If you remember... Back to the Future, the original one, where um, when Michael J. Fox's character meets Christopher Lloyd's character, he's wearing this giant thing on his head, which is trying to read his brain. Um, transcranial direct current stimulation is kind of the less wacky version of that, except instead of um, reading signals through the scalp as to which parts of the brain are most activated, it's actually putting a small amount of electric current in a couple of different points on the outside of your scalp, basically you've got anodes and cathodes just like anything else with with electricity flowing so you have a couple of points that are basically pumping a small amount of energy into the brain and a couple of points that are uh, receiving it and so by placing the anodes and the cathodes on different points on your scalp you're basically making certain neurons more likely to fire and certain neurons less likely to fire on the outside of the brain i mean basically this is it's a small signal so it's not necessarily penetrating deep into your brain stem where your things like your heartbeat are controlled which is a good idea because you probably don't want to be messing with that anyway but a lot of the um the higher level you know functioning of the brain the, the stuff that makes us a human rather than a, a reptile or a mammal is actually taking place on that frontal cortex the big outside um part of your brain anyway which is sort of your, your forehead and the top of your head so um this thing is available now um, in a couple different varieties for the consumer market. It's generally sold to gamers, people that are playing video games. It's something which can help their brain operate a little bit more quickly. But what happens is that you put one of these things on for typically about 20 minutes. You kind of literally charge up these areas of your brain. And during that 20 minutes and for typically about two to four hours afterwards, you have certain areas of your brain that are, are what's called potentiated, which means the potential of a certain neuron within that section of the brain to have its trigger fire and send whatever its chemical messages to the next neuron down the, the, the neuron chain is, is somewhat more likely. So how do you handle the, the precise targeting of that, right? Because you have to target a specific area of the brain, like so, and everybody's head shape and brain shape, I assume, is slightly different, right? So if I buy one of these consumer things, how do I dial it in? 
I mean, yes, everybody's brain is definitely different than everybody else's brain. And, you know, famously, like right-handers and left-handers have some some pretty severe differences between their brains and things like that. But as, as far as kind of the general areas of, you know, the occipital lobe does this, the you know, frontal parietal lobe does that, there are some pretty strong commonalities also. Um, needless to say, these sort of pre-built consumer rigs that you can buy for a couple hundred bucks for a gamer, you're not... Uh, it's they're they're going for the one size fits all, um, rather than trying to have you figure out exactly what part of your scalp is for what thing for you. They're sort of saying somebody with a normal brain, kind of in the middle of the bell shaped curve of, of of what areas do what. This is going to be the best fit for you. So Jesse, have you tried this uh, technology? It, it's funny that you ask. I actually just purchased one. I have one that I, I'm staring at it right now. It's on my desk. I have not used it yet, but I'm I'm going to be using it probably this weekend. So what have you heard are the uh, subjective effects of this? Like what, how, what do you feel like when, you're, when your yeah. neocortex is a little more likely to fire in general? I, I've heard, and here's the thing is, you know, I get emails and stuff from people about um, all these brain enhancement things that are, are literally across the board from raving with delight about certain things to, I didn't feel this at all. Am I doing something wrong? And, and so the person-to-person effects, and of course, teasing apart, is this uh, just an easily excitable person writing to me, or is it somebody who's incredibly skeptical to begin with, and so when they say something, I should take it even more seriously? It's like, I, I don't really know. Um, I've heard, as far as transcranial direct current stimulation goes, that it can be really profound for some people, that um, it can balance them out mood-wise if they're feeling stressed, that it can make them feel like they've had a full night's sleep when they haven't had a full night's sleep, and um, that during that, you know, maybe two to four or five hours afterwards, it can be a, a pretty profound thing, which is, I think, more than the um, the companies that sell this stuff necessarily even would tout. It's like they're they're pretty cagey about what it's actually doing. I think because, you know, different studies have said different things and the science is, is still sort of being figured out. I mean, it's, it's a safe technology because the actual amount of amperage that's getting put into your forehead is, is you know, less than a uh, nine volt battery. So it, it's, it's not plugged into the wall or something. There's no chance that you're actually going to, you know, electrocute yourself in some sort of dangerous way because you've got, you know, a live current going to the phone lines or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what to expect when I try it myself. I've got high hopes, but I'm, I'm trying not to you know, predispose myself, I guess, in either direction with placebo. It seems like a common theme with all this stuff is that it's just, it's hard to, like, I, I found myself in doing research and I find sometimes listening to your podcast and I find the, the kinds of things you're saying now is that like, there's just a lot that people simply don't know about stuff that's already available, let alone things that haven't even been developed yet. Uh, and it's very hard to, to generalize about the effects do you chalk that up primarily to the fact that, you know, everybody has some sort of unique brain chemistry or is it maybe that like intelligence is such a subjective and poorly defined concept as it is? Or like, is it just that our empirical methods aren't good enough? Like what, why do you think uh, it's so hard to pinpoint what some of these effects are? It's a great question. I'm, I, I'm tempted to say all of the above. You know, the one thing that probably your listeners have heard about is the idea of neuroplasticity, of the idea that the brain, more than anything else in our body, is kind of like a self-directing organ in that, like, like for example, if a, a baby born in a certain culture where people are, are making sounds that we don't make in the English language will have parts of its brain that are developed to hear those particular sounds and be able to hear like, you know, tones when people speak in Chinese that sound indistinguishable to those of us raised in a, a language environment that doesn't use tones. 
you know, that's just one example of the ways that the brain really fine tunes itself in a way that no other part of our body does. We don't talk about like muscular plasticity in the same way as we do about neuroplasticity. And so um, I, I think each of us probably has a very personally dialed in brain to a greater extent than we do any of our other body parts. And that probably makes it difficult to have these one size fits all solutions. Um, it's also pretty well agreed upon that the brain is the most complex thing in the known universe. There's something like 80 to 100 billion neurons in the average person's brain. And then there's something which I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, because it's one of these words I only see written and I never speak, but I think it's called the connectome or maybe the connectomy. But that's a map of how all the different neurons connect to their, their sibling neurons, which you figure you got 80 to 100 billion of these things to begin with, then the, the complexity of each of those can have you know, hundreds or thousands of, of dendrite connections to the other neurons. It's just ridiculous. So um, the, the ability to make the brain function better than it currently does is a really profoundly difficult process. It's probably on the order of putting a man on Mars or, 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 or something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It does seem like, at the very least, the current technology's strategy of uh, targeting neurotransmitters might just be too broad of a strategy to ever get true cognitive enhancement in the sense that, like, you're just all around smarter in the sense that you have like more neocortex than someone else. Right. I mean, isn't that like the main difference between like chimps and us basically that we just have a bit more of it than they do? Well, we, we have a whole lot more of it than, than a chimp does. Um, something like between, uh, you know, homo habilis and, and, you know, homo sapiens, the neocortex like tripled in size. So oh, wow. uh, part of it, I, I think is, is raw brain material. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's, there's more to it than that because like an average man has a much larger brain than an average woman just based on body size. But on the other hand, an average man isn't you know, orders of magnitude smarter than an average woman. And, and even if there were, I wouldn't say that because every, everyone in the world would kill me. But, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, just not worth it. But it's, it's obviously not true anyway. So there, there's something more than just sheer brain volume that is really modulating the level of, of expressed intelligence. Sure. That actually, you know, it kind of reminds me of the idea of uh, neurofeedback, which is an, another thing that people use for cognitive enhancement, which is, um, again, a not very well understood mechanism of action of what neurofeedback might be doing. But it seems to be doing something. And neurofeedback, by the way, is when your brain waves are being read through um, electrodes on the outside of the scalp. And then somehow information about those brain waves is being fed back to you in real time so that you can typically like hear modulations to a piece of audio that's being played that's having, um, that's having your own brain waves sort of fed back to you in that. And that doing those sessions over a period of time, like maybe, you know, an hour or so every couple of weeks tends to have beneficial effects for, you know, cognition, mood, uh, some, some people say memory, you know, all sorts of things, but it's tough to pin down exactly what's going on. But the best explanation I've heard for how this might be working is that if you think about like, if you've ever done yoga, one of the things that you'll learn when you're doing yoga is that sometimes the movements are difficult, not because you can't get your body into that position, but because you have these opposing muscle groups that you need to really, really relax one muscle group in order to flex the other one as far as it can. And in, so it's not just a matter of brute strength trying to flex one muscle. You really need to force the corresponding counter muscle to, to relax. 
And it, it seems to me that um, the best explanation I've heard of how neurofeedback works is that sometimes areas of your brain or signaling pathways within your brain might also be working at, at, at odds to one another, that where something is hampering something else within the brain, and that by giving your brain the ability to hear its own internal processes through neurofeedback, you can kind of give it access to what's going on in there so it can it can relax the areas that are that are hampering what it's trying to do when it's trying to do something what's interesting to me about this is it's unlike say the the pills that we were talking about earlier that are say targeting a neurotransmitter or some other introducing some other chemical into the brain this seems more like almost like a platform for your brain to learn right it's like uh right like a sort of a broadly useful to get feedback from your brain about what it's actually doing. And it seems like you could apply this so many ways, right? So like, what are some of the common applications of this? Yeah, I mean, neurofeedback is something that I haven't tried it yet myself. I'd, I'd really like to. I just haven't been in a location where I can get access to one of the um, sort of the high-end machines. There are lower-level consumer electronics, you know, Radio Shack version neurofeedback machines on the market, but I, I just I kind of wanted to go with the best of what's out there. And so, again, with, with the caveat that I haven't done it myself, one thing that I found surprising about neurofeedback is that with the rave reviews that it gets from people who do it and the fact that it seems like there's really no like you're not going to build up a tolerance to it there's not going to be physiological destructive changes that could be possible with some drugs or something like that like i'm and it's been around in, in one form or another for almost 30 years i'm surprised it's not more popular than it is because it because it seems almost like a, a sort of a holy grail type thing if what the proponents of it say is true. And so there, there's some questions that I just, I, I, I don't have, um, despite the fact I've been sort of looking around in these areas for several years now, that I, I don't have better understanding of why certain things aren't more widely used and widely accepted in the market. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never tried neurofeedback, but I've heard of it before. And the way it was described to me, it, it sounded like it's sort of like a meditation trainer. You know, when you're trying to meditate, if you've ever done that, a lot of it is like, am I doing it? Am I meditating? <laughs> like, am I right, am right. I sufficiently <laughs> empty of thoughts? Am I sufficiently letting things go? Um, am I doing the thing? And uh, what the neurofeedback sounds like it does is it gives you a kind of answer, right? It, it sounds like this works by almost positive reinforcement. So if it's telling you, hey, you're in state A, whatever that state is, and let's say state A is something you want to be in, it's a more focused state, that then if on the screen it visualizes that as somebody giving you a thumbs up or something, and when you're in a different state, it visualizes that as someone giving you a thumbs down. Uh, oh, I think it's more abstract than that, right? It's well, like, I've heard uh, of ones patterns. where it's actually like a video mm -hmm. game, right? Where you, you, you're actually driving, say, a car uh, really? with your brain, and the car continues down the track if you're in the state you're supposed to be in. <laughs> and then if you're in the state you're not supposed to be in, you know, the car, you know, it doesn't, doesn't move or oh, stalls. Cool. Yeah. There are definitely like, you know, play ping pong with your brain sort of things where when you, you first strap on the helmet and like, oh, yeah. say, okay, move the ball. It's like you don't have any idea how you're doing it. You're not sure what muscle you're trying to flex or like, am I, am I squeezing my pelvis? I mean, what should I be doing? But uh, eventually kind of by sheer happenstance accident, your brain fires off the right signal, you know, that, oh, hey, the, the ball on the screen just moved a little. And your brain kind of firing through trial and error without really understanding what you're doing, you start to be able to control these things, which when you think about it, it's probably very similar to how gaining control of your physical body when you're an infant is. It's like you've got all these nerves that you can you can kind of fire, but like you don't know what nerve makes your, your hands clutch or your your 
you know, your bowels contract or your, your make you throw up. It's like any of these things. So you're just kind of, when you're a baby, you're, you're firing all these things at once and like, hey, I just made my arm move. And eventually it's <laughs> like, okay, that's how I make my arm move now. And you don't have to think about it. Yeah. Save that one. <laughs> like that was cool. <laughs> I mean, my <laughs> hand do that a whole bunch into more a times. fist. Yeah. yeah. Well, so one question that I want to ask too is like, uh, it, turning more to the speculative side of things and like what might happen in the near future. It seems like, yes, there's a problem of that the brain is so interconnected and, and, and such a complicated thing in and of itself. But in terms of gathering the empirical data that we need and, you know, putting together all these studies and figuring out what everybody's experiences are and putting all that into, like, I wonder if there's a lot of progress to be made there in the next, say, 10 years in simply speeding up this research process. Oh, well, actually, funny that you should ask, because there, there's major, major research going on into getting a full understanding of the brain right now. There are two, uh, I wouldn't say competing, but they're, they're going on simultaneously, um, projects to, you know, quote unquote, fully understand how the brain works. One that's funded by the U.S. government and is kind of uh, analogous to the, um, the Human Genome Project from the 1990s. And then the European Union is also doing something which is very similar. So yeah, there's these couple of projects that are going on simultaneously with the stated goal of really having a full understanding of the way that the human brain works, being able to model those 80 to 100 billion neurons on a computer or whatever that means. And different teams of scientists are approaching this from a lot of different directions, whether it's slicing and dicing the brain or trying to use computer models to build a model from the way up or anything like that. Yeah, that stuff is fascinating. And obviously, like, if we could actually map the brain completely and actually know, I think earlier in the episode, you commented how, you know, scientists don't really agree how these things even create the effects that they do create. And, you know, sort of figuring out those mechanisms might make a huge difference, obviously. But actually, I, I was actually going in a little more tame direction than that, which is just to say, our data collection, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a community around people, yourself included, and, and listeners to your podcast, of people who are trying these things uh, in large numbers. And I don't know how well we're collecting and collating all that data. And I wonder if there's some just simple strides to be made in, in that direction. And of course, there are all these different studies that happen at, at different universities using different methodologies. And I wonder if there's some technological way to, to bring all that together uh, as more of a data collection challenge. Uh, do you think that there's like progress we could be making in, in that direction? Like, do you see that as a major bottleneck that's preventing us from learning more? Hmm. Gosh, good question. Yeah. I mean, I feel like collating huge amounts of data about people is you know, obviously, you know, Facebook's doing it with photos <laughs> and uh, things like that. You know, there, there's a lot of social platforms that could be used to gain huge sample sizes of different data if people were... Um, you know, willing to give that up or were, you know, somehow compelled to give that up. I'm not, I, I don't necessarily see a big push for that happening right now. I, it doesn't seem like other people on the consumer side are crying out for it or people on the government side are saying this is something that we need to have. It seems like information about like general health stuff will probably be collected in a, in a massive sort of way before information about actual um, brain usage or brain function. But it's an interesting idea. I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I think that might actually be one of the best ways to move forward with you know, cognitive enhancement. It might not be improving our individual brains one at a time, but giving us sort of a, a, 
a better way to you know, tie our brains together and, and learn collectively. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like if, if some of the problem is that there's all this data that's either being not recorded or in different places that you could fix it. But I, I totally agree with you that like, I don't see the push for that. And um, there might be, in fact, cultural obstacles to even getting a hold of that data uh, in the first place. Well, yeah, I, th- I think the, the scared people among the audience are going to say, well, wait, does, isn't that akin to reading my brain? If I'm giving up, you know, information about the way that my brain works, that's that much closer to, you know, big brother being able to predict my every move. And, and there's, there's a reason to think that that's not a, a, an illegitimate concern. Well, I'm not sure that Big Brother is going to need to read your brain to predict your every move, right? I mean, Amazon knows you're pregnant before you do already. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think we might get there whether you, you know, whether we get smarter or not. I'd, la- I'd rather be smarter along the way. <laughs> yeah, which is not to get too off topic here, but uh, we, we often end up on this topic <laughs> well, on this podcast. Well, we're at the speculative part of the podcast, so we which, may as well speculate. Which is that, you know, privacy seems to be being eroded just continuously. And so it's sort of, I guess it remains to be seen if people get over their anxiety about that. I, I think that privacy, like I, I think about this a lot, actually. It's going to be like the idea that privacy was important. We're probably going to be like the last generation to really remember that. And I kind of feel like, uh, you know, historians in the far future are going to look at the idea that privacy was important as like this strange cultural blip that took place, you know, sometime, you know, between when humans developed agriculture and and right about now. Because it's like if you were living in a tribe with all your caveman, you know, fellows, you didn't have any privacy. It's like everybody knew what was going on all the time. It's like the the hundred people that you knew that were in your clan. It's like they knew everything about you, and why wouldn't they? And and now we're getting into a point where, for technological reasons, privacy is really disappearing. And um and, and yeah, I just kind of think it, as important as it seems to us that remember you know the 1980s, 1990s when when privacy was a big deal, or and and when we knew why it was a big deal, it's just. You know, it, it's, uh, I think, a weird little cultural artifact, a blip on the long-term radar screen. I, I'm really sympathetic to that view. I think, you know, there is there are counter-arguments, which is that, you know, the culture that we have, uh, at least the culture that I'm familiar with in the West, I mean, that's the thing is these things also differ. They're so subjective. Uh, I mean, even culture in this, to culture. you know, recent times, there have been cultures that didn't have a lot of privacy. But yeah, but people mm-hmm. are really attached to it and, and they may fight for it. And, you know, but uh, it's definitely, I feel like if you're going to want privacy in the future, you're probably going to have to pay a lot for it in some way. Yeah, I feel like you'd be opting out of a lot of what will come to be considered normal society. So yeah, maybe that will lead to the argument that we can get some some more of this data collection uh, to, to try to tie this back to the, the topic at hand. But uh so earlier in the podcast, you were talking about how you might take one drug for one situation and one drug for another situation. And when you start changing your brain, it's interesting because it's almost like you're actually changing yourself and in some senses, maybe changing your personality, right? The personality of you on modafinil maybe isn't exactly like the personality of you on augmented. And mm-hmm. it's just, it raises all kinds of interesting identity questions about, you know, how should we define our enhancement goals? I mean, it would be nice if we could just say you make yourself more who you fundamentally are and just bring out your latent potential. I mean, that would be the magic super drug that just brings everybody up to what they want to be. But if we don't have that, and it sounds like more likely what we're going to have is this menu of options that kind of can push you one way or another, then we get confronted as a society with this choice of like, well, what do we actually want to do? Do we want to be, you know 
to just give one example, like a society of all type A hyperproductive people, you know, as one possible direction we could go if we were to augment ourselves sort of in an unnuanced way. I mean, do you think about these issues? It, it gets really philosophical. I mean, I think the, the only constant is change. That's true whether we're taking you know, smart drugs or dumb drugs or, or any sort of anything. Um, you know, is the 20-year-old version of you fundamentally different? Is, is that a greater expression of you than the 10-year-old version of you? It's like, I don't know. You could probably make an argument in either direction, but we're all constantly changing all the time. We have you know, diurnal rhythms. We, you know, is the, is the me with my neurotransmitter set that I have after a big meal late at night with a lot of carbs and I'm feeling a certain way, is that different than me in a mild ketotic state when I first wake up in the morning and I have a you know, fresh head of sleep? we're always changing. And so it's not a question of, do we try to reach this magical set point where my physiology and my neurochemistry is exactly what I think the ideal version of me is? Because you're always going to just be in a constant state of uh, hopefully a dynamic equilibrium. Where we choose to have our targets on that ever-changing dynamic equilibrium, that's a choice, I guess, that we all make with the best information that we have available. Um, and that could be, do I want to take the certain drug? It could be, hey, I know that if I'm in a bad mood, it might be because I haven't gotten any exercise in the last three days. And I, I know that if I don't shake my body around every now and then that I, I start to feel kind of you know, irritable. And that by going for a jog, I might be able to make myself feel better. So I'm going to neuromodulate myself that way. I mean, I agree with that, you know, that we're always changing and we're always like, you know, today me is not the same as tomorrow me and so on. But if I could push back on that a little bit, uh, obviously there's differences of degree, right? So mm -hmm. I think some of the promise of these drugs, and it sounds like at least the claims that some people are making could be more of a discontinuity where literally, you know, one hour uh, after taking the drug, you're in a radically different space that's much more different, say, than you would be after a bad night's sleep or after eating, you know, too much pasta. Uh, sure. Should we, I mean, wh what do you think we should be concerned about? Uh, like, what, what do you think are the pitfalls? Like, if, is it just a matter of giving people access to, like, the broadest range of choices? Well, I think we've all experienced examples of chemicals that, that make you feel rotten. If you've ever had food poisoning, you know, that, that's a, a chemical reaction within your body that just can make you feel, you know, like a truck ran over you and you'd rather be dead for that 24 hours. Um, you know, if people have had experience with depression, I know that, you know, there are people that have, have been long-term depressives that have taken an antidepressive and it, you know, literally a pill over the course of a couple of weeks that takes to build up in your system, it changes your life and you know, dramatically for the better sometimes. So, so you're right. There are mental states that different chemicals can get you in that are radically different from, I guess, the, the, the relatively minor changes that I make to myself with, um, you know, the, the nootropics that I experiment with. And yeah, I feel like as far as giving people the ability to modulate their own, how, you know, how they feel, whether it's, you know, how smart, how, what level of which emotions. Um, I'm kind of a believer in, in neurological freedom to the largest extent possible. I think if you give people information and give them access to these things, there's no reason not to let somebody screw around with their own neurochemistry, as long as it's not like a drug that's going to turn you into a homicidal maniac and then you're a, a danger to your fellow humans. But um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, the drug policies that we have saying, you know, you, you should not be able to affect your own neurochemistry in, in such and such way. I mean, that, that seems ridiculous to me.
Which, yeah, I mean, bringing up the issue of drug laws, like some of these things we're talking about are not entirely legal, right? I mean, if you, some of them are prescription medications. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about is prescription only in the U.S. Does like modafinil fall in that category? Yeah, yeah. Modafinil and armodafinil would both be uh, doctor's prescriptions, um, Adderall, Ritalin, certainly. Um, I think the racetams are, the racetams are an interesting case because they're, they're legal within the U.S. They're just considered... Um, like supplements, I believe. But if I recall correctly, in Australia, they're considered um, you know, drugs that need to be prescribed by a doctor. And I don't think that you can sell racetam-based drugs on Amazon. So there's some, it's, it's enough of a legal gray area where Amazon doesn't want to be selling them through their stores. And so uh, yeah, some of these things are easier to get than others. And then there's things like, you know, fish oil and you know, DHEA that are, are just, you know, standard supplements that you can get in any, uh, you know, GNC fitness store. Well, let's tie that into maybe like the last issue I want to talk about, which is one of access, right? So obviously the legality is a major thing that can impair people's access to these drugs. Another thing that might limit your access is cost. So if we allow ourselves to speculate for a moment, uh, a future where uh, we have much more powerful and effective versions of these smart drugs, I wonder, would you guess that they would tend to be more on the expensive cost prohibitive side or more, you know, broadly affordable because, you know, a lot of the concern I think that people have underlying issues of enhancement in the future is, you know, could there be some sort of an intelligence gap, right? Where, you know, the rich people... The rich people can pay to be smarter and therefore get more rich and therefore get more smarter. Which already sort of happens right? sometimes through the educational system. But yeah, like, but education uh, yeah. doesn't work that well. But a much more extreme, you know, yeah, education <laughs> is slow. And, and if these drugs worked, it would be a much more extreme gap we'd be talking about. So, I mean, do you see that as a possible outcome? I, to me, it really depends on how difficult the chemical manufacture of these things are. If it's something where the, the chemical recipe is simple enough that bazillions of labs around the world are going to be able to easily synthesize these things, I think it's going to be hard to artificially maintain the price or artificially limit the demand or, or whatever to keep everybody that, that reasonably wants them getting their hands on it. On the other hand, if for some reason the chemical manufacture were to be so difficult, I, I can only see a drug being sort of restricted to a, like a, a hyper-wealthy elite if it were so radically effective that it, it, it's getting out in the public could be considered almost like a weaponized technology. Like, oh, shit, this guy's suddenly got a 450 IQ. We can't let just anybody that wants one buy a pill that's going to give you a 450 IQ because who knows what all these crazy geniuses are going to do. Um, it, it, that seems a little bit like a far-flung, probably not terribly realistic scenario, but it would make for a great sci-fi movie. Yeah, that's a cool story. I mean, that's exactly when you want to put it in the water, I think, too. <laughs> I mean, ideally, you want to broadly share it, but then you worry that, you know, the first person that would stumble upon something like that would, of course, keep it for themselves. They only really need to keep it for a short time, probably, to get way far ahead of everyone else if they're really that much right, smarter. Right, exactly. Build the intelligent stepladder and just keep climbing. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we uh, wrap it up there? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's as far as we can go, I think, yeah. with this topic we got there. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Jesse, for, for coming on. Uh, just hey, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go check out your podcast, Smart Drug Smarts. Uh, it's really fantastically done, uh, really professionally done. Yeah, you guys should check it out. It's one of the best ones out there. We really like it. Um, thanks again for being with us, Jesse. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. Really, really appreciate it. It's just it's great to be on there. And yeah, you guys are one of my favorites as well. Uh, thanks very much. We really appreciate that.
Okay, so thanks for listening to our interview with Jesse Lawler from Smart Drug Smarts. I hope you liked that as much as I did. Um, and I wanted to just take a minute to acknowledge uh, that this is our 50th episode. So yeah, we made it this far. Congratulations Most to us. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and to you, listener, for getting this far. If you've listened to all of them. If you haven't, start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Uh, <laughs> Our podcasts aren't exactly that uh, time to, you know, the news cycle. So uh, if you do want to go back, I think there's a lot of stuff. It's true. You want to listen to them now before the future happens, because otherwise, what's the point? And uh, as always, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, the number one way that you can help us out is to give us ratings and reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. Or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. If you can rate us, that really helps a lot. We also love to hear from you in the comments, um, or you can email us at feedback at reviewthefuture.com. We're also on Twitter, RTF underscore podcast is the handle there. So you can always shoot us a message there or just follow us for updates. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.